Middle School Art Teacher Podcast, Episode 2. Hello and welcome to the second episode of Middle School Art Teacher. Thank you for sticking with me all the way to this um, greatly anticipated, uh, long-awaited second episode, sophomore effort of the Middle School Art Teacher podcast. I hope that those of you who have listened to the first episode enjoyed it. And I, uh, yeah, I want to thank you for hanging with me as I try to get the hang of this whole podcasting business, try to get my software working and try to make the most out of my $10 computer microphone. I literally, in order to try to keep the uh, the P's from popping and the S's from whistling, I literally have a wire coat hanger rigged up in front of the microphone with some of, uh, with some pantyhose stretched across it so you know you've seen you know the the real radio personalities and they have that um, that round uh, pop screen in front of their microphones well I have very close to the same thing in principle Um, it's not anywhere close to what they actually have but you know I'm thinking that it's probably gonna do the job so um, yeah, I'm still trying to figure out exactly what this is going to be like, how it's going to work. My main thing right now is uh, that I've now that I've gotten over a couple of software issues, um, you know, I'm trying to do this without any overhead whatsoever. So I'm using some freeware that uh, I'm gonna uh, promote here. It's called Audacity. Any of you that are on a uh, Windows machine that are interested in doing some podcasting use Audacity. It's it's pretty good uh, to begin with, and it's freeware. Those of you lucky souls who are on, uh, who have a Mac, you have GarageBand, which is supposed to be just incredible. So um, all I can ask for is your sympathy as I uh, as I continue to to push forward on this Windows machine. Um, but where was I? Yeah, so I'm still trying to, to get everything figured out, get the kinks worked out, but I'm having a lot of fun. Besides the software and hardware issues, you know, just the, the practical thing of I hit record and I start talking and then I want to go back and record what I just said because I don't think I said it perfectly and I just got to get on over that. So let's get right on to the lesson sharing. Uh, I've got a Georgia O'Keefe um, lesson that, that we did last year that I'd like to share with you guys. So let's get on into that. Now again, you can see examples of this lesson, this O'Keefe lesson, at the website, middleschoolartteacher.blogspot.com. And right off the bat, I need to give credit to the other art teacher up at Polk Middle School, Mr. Fred Lockwood, um, for not only having these images still available on his uh, teacher website, but for for finding and uh, building upon this lesson to begin with that we did last year that was really successful and created some uh, incredible results among the kids. So again, you can go to middleschoolartteacher.blogspot.com. Now what this is, um, is an opportunity not only for 
for us to have uh, talked about um, the artist O'Keefe and to show some examples of her works and, and talk about where she fit in as far as the, the whole timeline of, of art history is concerned. Um, but it also, you know, lends, uh, lends itself to um, various things as far as color schemes are concerned. And we talked about those just a little bit last week with the, the sign language um, project. But this one even more so, because this did fit in with our uh, color scheme unit when we were talking about analogous color schemes, complementary, warm and cool colors, all of those things. You know, you, uh, you can adapt this lesson and the colors that they're able to choose from and the colors they're able to use, you can adapt those in any way you want, whether it's, uh, you know, at the beginning of your color unit where you're going to part of the requirements are going to be that they, they choose an analogous color scheme or if you're talking about warm and cool colors and they have to choose those or if it's sort of a wrap up at the end of the unit maybe after you've done after you've addressed each of those different schemes now you're at the end of the unit and you can allow the student to choose any uh, color scheme that they want from the ones that you've already studied together you know this just uh, the, the possibilities are, are wide open um, and I believe that that's what Mr. Lockwood did with these in his class, was that he allowed them to choose from various color schemes, uh, either complementary or analogous, um, just just from the examples that, that are on the website. Um, so, um, you know, the, the first thing that, that we did was to cut down the 12 by 18 sulfite drawing paper that is sort of the, the standard uh, that we always uh, tend to start from. Um, and in this case we decided we ought to do, uh, go ahead and cut it down to a 12 inch by 12 inch um, so that it was just a perfect square that they were working with and um, but before they, they, they did the drawing um, what we did was to find uh, you know various examples of um, clip art drawings of, of flowers um, and I'll try to I'll try to find where exactly we got all of those, and I'll, I'll post it as a link um, on the show notes at the website uh, if I can if I can find those. But you know they they should be you should have no trouble whatsoever finding uh, plenty of examples there. So what we did was to create a packet um, full of uh, you know I, I really feel like we have between 25 to 35 different line drawings, different clip arts of flowers. And we allowed the kids to to look through those and and find the one that they wanted to use. But it, if you if you're familiar with O'Keefe's work, then you know that uh, one thing that she does often, not always, but but very often, is to uh, crop the image so that it's overlapping. Uh, if not three, then you know, then all four, or if not four, then all three of the edges um, of the picture plane. And it's a very very zoomed in, very focused. Uh, view um, a very uh, nearly claustrophobic composition and in order to make sure that our kids did that what we did is say they're looking at a, um, a clip art drawing and it's only two inches by two inches or three inches by three inches what we what we had them do before they um, before they looked at that image before they looked at that picture to draw it on their larger 12 by 12 paper is we gave them uh, little viewfinders um, made out of tag board, out of poster board, that had a two inch by two inch window cut out of the middle of it. 
So what they could do then is to lay that viewfinder, um, that basically a, you know a frame, lay that down on top of the of the the printout, the the um, the sheet in front of them, and they could move it around on the flower that they had chosen, and rotate it, and just try all different sorts of uh, composition layouts. You know, so they had a chance to see, you know, okay, what's it look like if I chop, you know, nearly the entire left half off and, and slide my viewfinder to the right or um, what's it look like if I get a little diagonal with it? You know, it allowed them um, an opportunity to have you know dozens and dozens of different looks before they ever got started. And once they once they moved the viewfinder to a part that they liked, once they had a view that they were satisfied with, then they would take their pencil and trace um, trace that square onto the the printout, so that they could then you know remove the the viewfinder and uh, look just at the, the little square that they had drawn and then to, to transfer that onto the 12 by 12 paper that they had. So that was, um, that's, where, that's where they began, um, was by uh, creating the composition using the viewfinder off of the printout that we'd given them. And they create that drawing on their 12 inch by 12 inch paper. The next thing that, that we would do is to use, uh, the t use colored tissue paper and thankfully we had we had quite a bit of it. Um, if you don't have uh, any whatsoever yet, then it can there can be it can be kind of costly to get um, to get started with this project. I think that you know a full set of uh, of the tissue paper rack from um, at least the the distributor that we use. I think it's you know around a hundred dollars. Of course, you can get refills later on for much much cheaper than that when you're short only a couple of colors. Um, but right off the bat, there might be some overhead that, that could be prohibitive for some of you guys. Um, but I would still encourage you to try to find a solution. Um, all the same, what, what, we would do, what you would do then is to, um, to have the students tear the tissue paper off little by little um, and then uh, apply it to their 12 inch by 12 inch paper using a mixture of glue and water. and um, you know, we we found that uh, baby food jars are uh, really useful in this case because you can just put you know a half inch to an inch of of water in a baby food jar, um, put some Elmer's glue in there, and that'll that'll serve a table throughout the entire day. Um, and you can you know pop the put the cap on it at the end of the day, and there's no need to uh, to worry about running that stuff down your sink or you know dumping it. At, um, in the in the grass outside, which is uh, not the greatest of ideas, so uh, we found those to be um, very helpful. The baby food jars. So there's um, <clears throat> there can be some uh, some bleeding that goes on as they put the tissue paper down if they get a little bit too generous with it as they're as they're applying it. So you want to uh, be sure that you demonstrate it for them, of course. Um, and now the, the thing is, is, as they begin to lay the, the tissue paper down, there is a chance that it might cover up their drawing. So it doesn't hurt to have them go over their drawing either very darkly with their pencil or if, if you're okay with it, then um, just a black Sharpie marker um, or some type of permanent marker so that it will uh, for sure um, end up showing through in the end. Now again, uh, what you have to be careful with there is the uh, the marker bleeding through. So um, I'm I, I don't recall having my kids do that with the marker. I just you know had them draw it very darkly with the pencil so that we didn't have to be concerned about that uh, that bit of it. 
um, whatsoever. So after they have all of the uh, the color blocks done um, with the with the various colors of tissue paper, um, oh, and let me say this, you know, as as they're working on this aspect, this part of the project, which will take them several several days if they do a a clean um, and good job, at the uh, either at the end of the day or um, or yeah, I mean, yeah, it's going to have to be at the beginning of the or at the end of the day for for your classes in the morning. Those those papers should be dry. Take them off of your drying rack or wherever it is that you're keeping them, and um, you know, in a, in a stack, put some heavy books on top of them uh, because you know the the paper's going to as it dries, it's going to warp a little bit. And um, Mr. Lockwood was uh, really good uh, in, in sharing this with me that if you um, put them under something heavy at the end of the day, uh, those classes that you have in the morning, then uh, that, that'll help them to dry flat. And then when you get to school, you get to work the next morning, take your, uh, your afternoon classes that may not have been dry before you left the, the building and um, give them a couple of hours underneath some heavy weight as well. And that will, uh, that will go a long way in ensuring that they, they dry flat and, and look nice. So after the tissue paper aspect is completely done, then um, you get to add uh, what's you know gives the in real life it, it gives the the picture some real texture and some really great richness and that is to apply oil pastels on top of the uh, the collage tissue paper um, and again there's you know excellent opportunities here to talk about uh, value visual and actual texture. Um, just, you know, again, with, with what I hope you guys will do with these lessons um, that come from our classrooms, um, to, you know, don't just take them as they are unless you just really uh, want to see what you come up with, but, um, you know, take them and, and modify them and, and see, what you, see what you can do with them and then share it with me so that I can uh, maybe, you know, uh, incorporate that change into my classroom this year or next year. So, um, so that's that's what you'll do there. It's just to to have them add the oil pastel colors on top, and then you'll see on the website the example to the right. What the student did was then to go back over the the outline of her drawing with a black oil pastel, and that you know definitely gives a certain quality. Um, you may or may not prefer that. The students may or may not prefer that. Um, it's not definitely not something that you might want to require, but show them as an option. Uh, you can compare the first picture to the third picture and see which one they prefer, what sort of uh, what sort of quality and characteristic they want their final picture to have. But there you go. This was a lesson that we had. Um, I'll probably end up saying this every time because it's not like I'm going to share a lesson with you and then say, you know, this is something that only about two kids did a really good job on. Um, <laughs> that wouldn't make a whole lot of sense at all. But this truly is a, a lesson that... Um, I, you know, a good amount of kids had some great success with. You know, the, the talented kids, of course, are going to to do a great job with just about anything you throw at them. But it's those uh, those middle of the road guys that you want to um, really try to find a way to to elevate. And uh, I found that this project in particular really did that. That that, that the kids who um, that the kids who are kind of hit or miss, you never know that they had a pretty high rate of success here. And so that was uh, very encouraging. And um, you know, this is one of the one of the pieces one of the pieces that we put up at our um, semester show, um, and we had some great feedback from the, from faculty on this particular project. Uh, people found these to be really really nice to to look at, 
And you know, and again, um, there's the uh, the art history tie-in with with Georgia O'Keeffe. Uh, if any of you happen to put together a, a PowerPoint or something, um, that would be great if you would be so kind as to to share it with me um, at uh, middle school art teacher at gmail dot com. So, hope that you enjoyed this lesson, and I look forward to seeing what some of you come up with. From the classroom. All right, this week's Tales from the Classroom is a. I, I was shocked when it happened, so we'll call it a shocking episode that happened to me last year. At our middle school, the the way the discipline program is set up is it's it's called Make Your Day, uh, and if you want to know more about it, you can go to I believe it's MakeYourDay.org, but. Um, basically, if you know if a student is disrupting or talking out in class, you know rather than stopping everything and um, getting onto just that one student uh, while everybody sits and waits, then um, what you do is you uh, you know just walk by that student and say um, step one for you know disrupting or for throwing in the eraser or whatever it is that they did, and they know that that means that they are to get out of their seat and go to um, the edge of the classroom. It's, I mean, it's basically like timeout, except you know we don't call it that. And and if they disrupt while they're on step one, then they've chosen step two, uh, which is that they they stand at that at that chair for five minutes rather than sitting in it. And um, I'll I'll spare you the rest of the details, but but basically, um, one of my students had chosen step one, so she was uh, sitting in sitting in her chair and um, you know continued to to be disruptive. And so um, that you know I walked over and told her you've chosen step two for being disruptive on step one, which means that she is to stand up um, and continue to be quiet there. And so uh, I continued teaching and helping kids out, and so after about five minutes, you know, I'm making my way back over there to her to to um, allow her to go back down to, to step one. And as I'm walking over there, um, I notice something. And I don't know if you've seen these before, maybe you've seen them on some of your kids or seen them at the mall, but... Uh, they have these belt buckles now that they're about, I, I would say, about five inches wide, four to six inches, something. Um, and they're the, they're LED screens, you know, like the uh, like you'll see at banks or something where it's like um, the red lights and they spell out words or numbers or anything like that. Well, they have them now um, as belt buckles. And so as I'm walking over to her, she's just she's just standing. Uh, facing right at me with, I mean, just kind of a posture of attitude, and I'm thinking, okay, well, she's still a little bit upset, but then I notice that her belt buckle, it's scrolling words, and it says, F you, and except, of course, it's written out, and at first I was so shocked, and I thought, surely I'm reading that wrong, but it just displayed and displayed again, and I was floored. I could not believe that I mean first of all I was you know I mean just the guts of the kid to do that but um oh my goodness so that just uh that is probably something that I won't forget for a really long time and and obviously you know she ended up uh being expelled for a couple of days or suspended for a couple of days which she never liked to see but at the same time I mean you know she needed to know that there are consequences for those actions but um you know when she when she came back for the rest of the year 
uh, you know, I just tried to, uh, I guess, kill her with kindness. They say, you know, I was just trying just to be as uh, happy to see her as I possibly could. And even this year now, she's an eighth grader, and I no longer have her in class. But, you know, when I see her in the hall, I uh, smile, hey, it's so great to see you, how are you doing? And um, she doesn't really know what to do with that, <laughs> to be honest with you. She just always kind of looks at me like I've lost my mind. Um, but I'm determined that by the end of this year, before she leaves our building, I will get a smile back and a, hey, I'm doing good, how are you, Mr. Ray? Um, we'll, uh, I'll keep you updated as to whether or not that that actually happens. But that's the, uh, that's the tale for this week. Again, if you have a uh, crazy or embarrassing um, or inspiring story that you would like to share, um, on this podcast, then you can email it to me and I'm happy to read it. Or another cool thing would be that you could record the story, save it as a sound file, and email it to middleschoolartteacher at gmail.com. And then I can just play your voice telling the story. So that would be pretty cool. All right, so that does it this week. Let's move on to Problem Solved. <laughs> Well, because our uh, listenership, if that's a word, um, remains pretty low at the moment, considering this is just the second episode, I haven't gotten a lot of, or any for that matter, um, no, I take that back, I did get one uh, suggestion from last week's problem in the Problem Solved segment about the sketchbooks. One, uh, one listener suggested that, you know, instead of making it a daily routine where they come in and do their sketchbooks, maybe we just did it on just a Friday. That way they were looking, it was something that they could look forward to, uh, a change in class. Um, and so I thought that was a pretty good idea, and I thought maybe, you know, you could do it on Tuesday and Friday so that they're getting a little bit more practice in, but it, it keeps with the, the principle of what the listener suggested, um, which is just to give them some variety to mix it up so that it's not an, an everyday thing. So I continue to, to wait to hear back from some other listeners um, on what maybe has worked for you. And the problem that I would like to share this week is it's kind of a uh, <laughs> kind of a vague general problem, but it's one that, that I struggle with, and one of my very best friends is a first-year language arts teacher, and we had a conversation um, about this, and, and he was having the same, the same issue, and that's just... Uh, general consistency and to a degree even fairness in grading and it's completely um, I don't know it's just it's so uh, gray in art I think um, or I and it I can just say that that's one of the things that I'm, I'm struggling with is feeling very really confident in um, in the grades that, that I'm giving um, and I, I've tried, you know, I mean, I'm obviously using, you know, rubrics as like, as the, as the base. Um, but, but even the, even there, I'm not completely, uh, not completely satisfied or confident in the, in the process, to be totally honest. Um, and so, I mean, it's kind of just a, a general, um, a general problem. Uh, so I'm just wondering, you know, if, if there are any of you out there who feel like when you first began or, um, even, you know, after many years maybe that you're still struggling with finding, you know, what's the best system, what's a very good way uh, that I can um, grade each student individually based on their past progress, um, but also make it so that it's, uh, 
you know, so that the students who deserve to get the better grades are getting them. Because I'll just share that share this um, that happened the last time the progress reports came out that um, one of my very best students. Uh, she's literally one of the top five kids that I see all day long. Um, she, uh, her, her performance over this, over that three weeks, um, had just kind of tapered off a little bit. She had been getting 98 to 99. She's still doing outstanding work, uh, but it had tapered off just a little bit. And so um, she received a 91 on her progress report, which is still, you know, a good grade. But for her, it was a significant dip. And um, she was so upset about it. Other kids were, were giving her a hard time because they had received, you know, a 93 or a 94. And those students are not nearly as talented as she is, but they had been working hard. They had improved their work from the previous progress reports, and so I wanted to, um, I wanted that to be reflected in their grade. Um, you know, they had been doing better work than the, the 79s or the 84s that they had been doing, and, and it warranted them an improvement in their, in their grade, but as a result, it gave them a higher grade than a student that clearly they aren't, um, I hate to use the word better, but just frankly, you know, a, a more uh, successful art student, clearly they were not um, up to that level as she was. So, uh, I just wonder if, if any of you have, have experienced those same problems, and you know, how you, how you address it and how you um, are working with it uh, so that, you know, assessment is just such an important part of the, um, the education process in general. You know, what are you doing to, um, to address those things? So I look forward to hearing from you. Again, you can just comment at the, the website, middleschoolartteacher.blogspot.com, or you can email me at middleschoolartteacher at gmail.com. And finally, let's see what the old snobs are up to in the art world with That's News to Me. Recently, um, a de Kooning sold at a Christie's auction, and it set a record for the highest price paid for a post-war piece of art sold at auction. So, post-war and not a private sale. Uh, had to be at an auction. So a couple of contingencies there, but still... A record nonetheless, um, so that's exciting for the good old folks over at Christie's. And in the same auction, um, one of Warhol's portraits of Chairman Mao went for $17.4 million, and that is the top price paid for a Warhol. Um, I, and it doesn't say whether or not that's specifically for a, an auction or a, a, a private sale, but that did get me to wondering I got a little curious if this is the record for a post-war sale at auction then what is the highest price ever paid for a piece of art or a painting um, without any sort of uh, qualification so I went to one of my favorite websites on the entire internet and um, it is Wikipedia uh, I just love Wikipedia so much and for those of you who aren't familiar with it it is an online encyclopedia that is written by visitors um, anybody can edit an entry or add an entry 
and you would think that that would mean that it could be it would be susceptible to to hacks and um, inconsistencies and all of those sorts of things. But because the network is so big, and because the the people behind Wikipedia, um, you know, who are who are heavily involved in it are so passionate about it, then they uh, go to great pains to make sure that the entries are reviewed and that they are. Uh, that they do remain accurate, and as a matter of fact, a, a recent study showed that Wikipedia is just as accurate as Encyclopedia Britannica. Um, so it's just one of the many reasons that I am a huge fan of it, and some of you may have heard the term Web 2.0. Uh, for a long time, I kept seeing that, that little phrase, that, that term pop up, and I never knew what it meant. But I finally, uh, over the past couple of months, learned that Web 2.0 is, um, and I'm kind of getting off on a tangent here, but it's this new uh, way of doing websites where the visitors contribute to or are completely responsible for the content at the website. So you have like Wikipedia, uh, YouTube, Flickr, um, you know, websites, uh, library thing, uh, which is another great one. Uh, websites like that where, where the users uh, communicate and network with one another in ways that weren't possible um, when the World Wide Web first came into being. And Wikipedia puts that, that technology and that idea um, to, to great, great use. And so anyway, let me get back to uh, what we were talking about. That's that I went to Wikipedia and found the list of the most expensive paintings and it turns out that there's a um, somewhat of a, uh, maybe not a, a controversy, but a misunderstanding over what the actual number one most uh, expensive painting ever purchased was. And there's no dispute over how much it sold for or what it is. It is, I'll give you a second to think about it. Okay, it was number five by Jackson Pollock. Did you get it? I would not have. Um, <laughs> it was it was painted in 1948, so it does fit the post-war criteria. But it was um, it was sold privately. It was not sold at auction, so it does not fit that criteria. Number two is actually also a de Kooning, um, but again, um, it was uh, sold privately. And then number three is a Klimt, number four is a Van Gogh, Portrait of Dr. Gachet, and number five is a Renoir. And um, I'll leave the rest uh, to you so that you can satisfy your curiosity by going to middleschoolartteacher.blogspot.com and then click on the Wikipedia link in this show's notes. And you can see the rest of those. And what's actually really kind of neat is that they have the prices adjusted for inflation. Um, so that's kind of cool to uh, to see that to see what um, something that was sold you know back in 1990 or in 87 you know what the what the actual price um, would it would have been uh, possibly today. So that's going to wrap us up uh, here at the middle school art teacher podcast. Hope that you've enjoyed episode number two, and I look forward to chatting with you next week. This has been a 
podcast of Middle School Art Teacher. Be sure to visit us on the web at middleschoolartteacher.blogspot.com.